0: Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Fiona Hill. Fiona Hill is a senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Fiona, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Paul. Great to be
0: here. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but I'm going to start by asking you about about U.S. foreign policy, obviously. And I will try and be as impartial as possible by talking about foreign policy in the event of a Biden victory in November, foreign policy in the event of a Trump victory in November. So starting with, with a Biden victory in November, how would foreign policy change, in your view, especially in the short term, if Joe Biden were to become the president come November?
1: Well, I think based on uh, the group of people that, you know, we all generally know um, are around Biden or likely to be around Biden, you know, many people who've served under previous uh, Democratic administrations, uh, um, you know, under Obama and, you know, people who were anticipating, uh, are anticipating, confident that there'll be a lot more emphasis on the transatlantic relationship than there has been under this administration, you know, of more efforts to, um, Uh, reinvigorate the ties with the allies um, in the NATO context as well, and certainly an effort to patch up uh, some of the frayed relationships with uh, individual European counterparts. Um, We can talk about that as we go on uh, the discussion today, but I mean, obviously there's some key relationships that um, have come under quite a bit of pressure in Europe, um, the United States. Uh, So I think overall Europe will be back in the picture in a way that it hasn't been for for some time. I think the other big big challenge, though, will be China and how to deal with China. And also, I mean, those have been um, the source of quite a lot of the uh, discussions um, and disputes Over the last uh, three plus years, in any case, uh, trade ties with Europe writ large, and then um, how to deal with China, China's aggressive trade practices. Uh, There'll be a lot of discussions still about uh, China and security uh, that will have to be raised. Uh, We've already focused on China and its aggressive trade practices. But there's a lot of questions about what happens um, with uh, 5G in the security field, strategic infrastructure and strategic assets. And then the question of uh, China's overall international profile and how we deal with that. So those will definitely be on the uh, agenda with Biden. And I think we can also anticipate climate change, which has dropped off the agenda entirely in spite of the crises that we all see uh, happening right now um, in real time. And uh, there will be uh, a great imperative uh, with the Biden administration to put that onto the agenda, Uh, again, again in the context of the pandemic uh, as well. I mean, we've we've also failed uh, to mount any kind of concerted, uh, not just domestic response in the United States, but international response to the pandemic. And I think that will be an imperative for a Biden administration because we certainly won't be out of the difficulties we currently find ourselves in by January.
0: OK, we've kind of pressure you a bit more then on China, because obviously climate change is sort of coming back on the agenda if there were to be a, a Biden victory, whereas China is already on the agenda, as it were. So are you saying in so many words that there is now in effect, uh, irrespective of who occupies the Oval Office, a US-China policy?
1: I think one's taking shape, but I think we have to be very careful about where it's heading, because right now it seems to be taking shape um, in the direction of a very aggressive confrontational policy. You know, who's going to be tougher on China seems to be, you know, part of the background noise here, though, you know, right now, given uh, the uh, extent of the pandemic and the impact that that's having on the economy and on politics, um, even some of the discussion of China has sort of faded to the background here in the United States as the domestic imperatives have um, have crowded the stage. So um, on China, I mean, we're very much in the midst of uh, that debate uh, that's been outlined uh, by um, uh, my old professor Graham Allison, the Thucydides trap. You know, whether we're doomed to have a confrontation with China, you know, that's mirroring the kind of confrontation that we had with the Soviet Union and uh, Russia in the past. You know, do you have to go down a confrontational path, or is there a way of working with your allies? This is where Europe will come in. And beyond Europe, Australia, Japan, Canada, you know, many of the other key countries that are either, you know, related to the United States through NATO or through other strategic partnerships. India, I mean, who've obviously had a, a, a pretty unpleasant confrontation uh, recently with uh, China in the Ladakh corridor, a very dangerous situation uh, that's uh, emerged there. How do we manage? Uh, this China issue overall, both in the uh, physical security aspects, uh, Charlie's military posture, but also on the trade, infrastructure and other dimensions of this.
0: Okay, well, let's, let's keep trying to be impartial. In the event of a, uh, of a Trump victory in November, what else could President Trump and his administration do in the, for, in the broad foreign security field that he hasn't already done in the past three and a half years?
1: Well, I think China's uh, on top of that agenda again as well with trade, um, but, you know, what I would uh, foresee is a continued adversarial approach to trade with Europe. It's just tensions with the European Union and European counterparts on trade now that it's going to be very difficult to foresee um, the um, negotiation of a meaningful trade deal beyond, you know, transactions on individual issues. I mean, there was a hope, of course, that we'd be able to uh, conclude a trade deal that would be um, a trendsetter in terms of norms and regulations, uh, that it would be um, all-encompassing a comprehensive trade deal between the US and uh, the European Union. But I think, you know, that the posture of this administration is that Europe is a problem in trade and that, you know, what it will be will be more kind of a lot of arm wrestling on individual sets of issues, particularly in the agricultural space. And in a way, the administration is viewing Europe in the same context it is China and you know other uh, as a
0: competitor. As a competitor, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, because there's a view in uh, this administration that the United States should have had um, a, um, a trade deal right off the bat without any negotiation. In other words, the complete opening of uh, European markets to U.S. products because of the protection that the U.S. has afforded. Europe through NATO. If you listen very carefully to what the president and some of those around him have been saying is, we protected Europe, you know, for the whole 75 plus years at the end of World War II through the Cold War. And in return for that protection, we ought to have had um, preferential trade treatment. So there should be no barriers at all to US products. Now, obviously, that's not the way that Europe sees it. But that's where you get the, um, you know, the, the, uh, pronouncements by the president that the EU is worse than China because obviously there was no protection mm. um, arrangement with China, no security treaty as there has been with um, Europe through uh, NATO and or with Japan, for example. And the the idea that you know the president says that U- the European Union was set to rip up, set up to rip off the United States. It's this idea that it was set up to compete economically, which of course it was, uh, but um, you know, at the expense of the United States, again getting back to this idea that the United States offers Europe a comprehensive security in which it prospers. So you've got a kind of a breakdown in this idea of what the relationship between Europe and the United States was, uh, particularly in the mind of, the, of this president and his administration. Europe owes the United States uh, open uh, trade in return for this continuation of the trade relation, of the security relationship, sorry, through right. NATO.
0: Well, you've nicely teed up the next part of our chat, Fiona, by, by mentioning NATO. Thank you for that. Um, before I ask you about your your views about the extent to which NATO has to, or is able to, or willing to, to adapt, given current, you know, and, and the evolving nature of modern security threats, I want to talk to you a bit about the obvious... question about burden sharing i mean to be fair and not to give any too many bouquets in direction of president trump he's he's simply saying maybe in rather less elegant language what his predecessors including obama have been saying that that europe should stump up more in terms of their uh, contributions to to nato no fair point
1: yes that's exactly what he's been saying he's been just saying it so much more bluntly than anyone before and what he has Uh, done in terms of an innovation on this is to leverage what we all think of as the fundamental pillars of uh, NATO, including Article 5 and collective uh, self-defense and, you know, a sense of collective responsibility for the defense of everyone uh, individually. So what you've seen there is um, Trump has uh, thought about that as a favor Mm. (laughs) that the United States um, really extends to Europe, you know, following on from, you know, the, the point about trade. And if Europe is not picking up its burdens, then why should the United States uh, be also contributing uh, to European security? So he's put it in very stark terms. And when I was in the um, NSC, you know, that would be what I would hear as the complaint, understandably, from you know many European counterparts. Yes, yes, we understand that this is the same point that previous administrations were making and you know previous interlocutors, but bristling at the bluntness and the starkness in which this was expressed to them.
0: Right. So the, but there the are two kinds of critics in broad terms of, of NATO. Those who say, obviously, the United States, but elsewhere, that, that European members in particular don't pay. The majority of European members do not pay their fair share. They are free-riding, quote-unquote. And then the other kind of critics who say, actually, well, NATO is sort of stuck in the 20th century and hasn't woken up to the new, the new kinds of global threats that, that, that uh, face liberal democracies in particular. So what do you think uh, NATO is doing and should be doing to, to move the times, as it were?
1: Well, those two things were actually rolled together, Uh, those two um, ideas were rolled together, though perhaps without the explicit references to liberal democracy. Uh, There was more the idea that NATO was no longer uh, facing a shared threat perception. So uh, some countries obviously closer to Russia's borders, the Baltic states, Poland and, and others were deeply concerned about Russia still as a threat. And, um, you know, President Trump and others would say, well, if that's the case, if Russia is still the threat, why do the rest of the European countries not uh, think so? That's actually at the root of some of the disputes with Germany, for example. You know, the the idea that if uh, Germany uh, shares that threat perception, why is Germany courting closer commercial ties with Russia, for example? And also not stepping up, especially Mm -hmm. in the wake of the annexation of Crimea and the idea of the tension emerging with Germany was based also on the idea that if Russia is in threat to NATO, why is Germany not paying more towards right. European security in terms of meeting the two percent commitment that everybody made at Wales under a previous administration? Mm. And why then is Germany still pursuing major commercial deals with Russia that are obviously, you know, paying money into Russian state revenues like Nord Stream 2 that can be used for purchasing more armaments, you know, that can be used to then threaten the Baltic States, Poland and other, you know, eastern neighbours of Germany.
0: Right. You know, what is NATO
1: standing for, not just what is NATO against. So French, for example, having a different threat perception too, not wanting to also step up either on Russia or on um, uh, some of the burden-sharing of the counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan or in Syria, for example. You know, the French were also somewhat leery about, you know, how much they should be contributing to some of the NATO operations there in support of what the U.S. was doing, because the French are saying that they are taking the bulk of the burden Mm. in response to uh, the Sahel, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, operations um, against uh, terrorist operations there, and then of course you know the French have also said that they want to take more of a role in Libya, though that's also contentious and so we see that um, many of the key players obviously have a completely different perspective on where the emphasis should be within NATO. We have Italy and other Mediterranean countries extraordinarily concerned about overall security in the Mediterranean, especially with migrants and um, smuggling uh, operations, human trafficking operations. So there's a sense that um, NATO, for many countries, is no longer against the same sets of threats that they're concerned about. And then the question is, what is NATO for?
0: Right. You, 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 are, you are painting a pretty bleak and negative picture there. I mean, do you see grounds for, you say, what is NATO for? So what are the are there grounds for optimism and, a, and a, a kind of reset for NATO?
1: No, I think that there are. And I have to actually um, give a lot of credit to Secretary jeldon Stoltenberg, um, who, I, in my experience of working with him and uh, with his office, I really got this. I mean, he understood that this was an issue. And I think that what he has tried to do, you know, behind the scenes, because the difficulty is hashing this all out in public. Because obviously what it does do then is uh, point the, um, uh, everyone's attention to what we're saying is what looks like a bleak picture of weakness, when actually there's a lot of inherent strength. And, um, you know, but when you're airing all of these problems publicly, you know, that takes up all the oxygen. So people can't really kind of see In fact, where you are stepping up uh, behind the scenes on, you know, um, sub-NATO coalitions, in other words, you know, groupings within NATO who are doing, you know, a lot of um, work, particularly in terms of forward deployments in the Baltic states, you know, working with uh, partners like Sweden and Finland, who are not in NATO, but are key regional partners uh, on security in the Baltic Sea, for example, or with Israel and other partners um, uh, in the Eastern Med. Uh, on um, you know, other missions there, particularly to um, deal with um, human trafficking and uh, you know, some of that security concerns. Um, and also, um, NATO has been having very serious behind-the-scenes discussions on issues like cybersecurity, how to deal with hybrid warfare, mm-hmm. um, you know, the kinds of operations that Russia has launched in Crimea and elsewhere that don't quite meet the thresholds of um, the, you know, sort of a NATO military response yeah, right. and, um, you know, where, um, and how we should deal with China you know, as, a, as, a, as a long-term threat. So there's been a lot of discussion behind the scenes that Stoltenberg has presided over where I think that they've been really addressing this. And again, in these you know, kind of smaller groups so that you're not going to go through that huge exercise that we had back in 2010 where we rethought the entire doctrine.
0: Right. But that was
1: in a much calmer period Admittedly, it was after the war with Georgia, between Russia and Georgia, but it was also in a a calmer period where we weren't facing quite the same press of uh, crises as we are now.
0: Well, you mentioned cybersecurity, and that's maybe a good way to talk a bit also about the extent it is feasible, desirable, and uh, to have more cooperation between NATO on the one hand and the European External Action Service on the other. I say that because the EAS is also very much exercised amongst the many other issues about things like cybersecurity as well as disinformation. So do you think they're the kind of areas where they, there could and should be more collaboration between NATO and the European External Action Service?
1: an scenario where it's essential for us to have cooperation and collaboration. You know, I mean, I, I, I think you know, obviously it's going to be quite difficult now to... Affect the kind of cooperation and collaboration that NATO and the EU had in the past because of Brexit and you know the UK mm. crashing out of uh, the European Union. Because it was one of the areas on uh, that um, hybrid uh, warfare, um, information war, cyber security. Um, this is one of the areas where the UK was very important as an actor there mm. in terms of information sharing, and um, we saw that also in counterterrorism that the UK played an extraordinarily important role. And now there'll be more, um, you know, critical members in NATO that are outside the EU, not to mention the United States and Canada on top of this and Norway, but there'll be just more European players as well that we're going to have to contend with. And it's it's essential to be able to work in that space, the information space writ large. We have to also, I think, be more unified on um, the issue of election interference, be it Mm -hmm. by Russia or by anyone else. And we've seen that even with a fairly um, low-level uh, set of interventions or operations and active measures um, and disinformation, you can have a huge impact. The vulnerability of our society, this is great because of social media and just the whole way that people consume information, the deep levels of distrust that many uh, uh, populations have in their government because of mm. polarization, you know, growing inequality, yeah, you know, the, the breakdown of traditional parties. Um, you know, there's so many reasons for this, that, um, you know, we don't have a lot of time to go into, but right. suffice to say that it's only in unified action and, and um, exchanges of uh, best practices at pushing back against these information operations and uh, against these efforts to interfere on our elections with a unified response. But seeing the same um, impact is their effort is also to divide countries um, against each other. So you saw the operations against the Bundestag in 2015. They didn't actually release the information uh, that they hacked from uh, the German party to sort of see how uh, they could use this in the future. But then when they didn't release that, of course, it made the Germans then think that they weren't being targeted in the same way that... Standing back
0: a bit, um, Fiona, and, and looking at the external action services institution now in its 11th year... Uh, how do you think it's performed? It obviously started from scratch in 2009. Has it reached its full potential? I ask the question because you hear more and more, especially in Brussels, but also member state capitals, inside the institution, by the way, as much as outside. That it seems a rather unloved and, and increasingly questioned the institution. You know, did. Did the, did the use leaders do the right thing in creating the service in the first place? That's a rather dramatic way of, of putting it, maybe. But um, has, in your view, the External Action Service reached its potential, is reaching its potential?
1: Just for, you know, so for some of the reasons that you're hinting at there in the way that you framed the question.
0: Could you re- rephrase the question. No, no,
1: no. I think that that's, um, uh, you know, kind of the... Um, the way that we should start thinking about it. Think about NATO in this context, which we were talking about. We talked about the Secretary General who um, has a private office and they have a you know, larger sort of secretariat and they have a headquarters. We all had buy-in to what NATO was doing and what the Secretary General was doing. But by contrast, you know, kind of in terms of, you know, NATO where there was overall buy-in about what the role of the headquarters was going to be. Um, you know the European, you know, External Action Service, of course, came into being as a result of the Lisbon Treaty. You know, but we know that that had a rather fraught passage. Mm. I mean, it didn't get accepted by every country. You know, right away there was already the, um, the all the signs that you know the UK was still questioning its mm. whole involvement in the EU. Didn't like the kind of the deepening idea of the European Union. A lot of resistance to uh, a lot of the common policies. And you know we've just seen over over time preceding the pandemic um, with the crisis um, of uh, two thousand eight, the last economic crisis, that all of the disputes uh, that have arisen within the EU uh, have, I think, just eroded that sense of common purpose. Right. So the External Action Service has just had to weather all of those storms. But you know, I what I'm hopeful uh, for from um, the European Union's Perspective is that the recent uh, summit and the effort to create a common approach to the pandemic will also rub off on the External Action Service. Okay. But what it may have to be is um, a more limited perspective on what its role would be. Okay. That might be, you know, part of the way of reinvigorating it, right. rather than you know, mirror and duplicating all of the functions, you know, of all of the foreign services of all of the governments. You know perhaps the key would be to focus on some pretty critical issues where there's much more agreement uh, of an eu role so perhaps a, a kind of less all-encompassing uh role for the external action service and a more targeted and focused role you know for the near term
0: okay a, a final question um Fiona you touched on briefly a few minutes ago Brexit uh, so the uk is, is has left the european union the transition uh, period comes to an end at the end of this year as we all know what do you think either from the from the external perspective the us perspective where you where you live and also from the european eu 27 perspective and then finally the uk perspective what would be the impact on on the uk's sort of standing uh, and positioning in in the broad global foreign and security policy uh, environment in which it likes to operate. It has to operate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of difficulty ahead for everybody in uh, this post-Brexit environment because, of course, Brexit was thought about initially in a much um, more predictable, calmer context. Um, Nothing is ever predictable and calm, but I think there were sort of assumptions made um, you know, around the time of 2016, you know, first of all, that um, uh, the global trends were continuing uh, in terms of, um, you know, Britain expanding its international trade. Um, they didn't foresee, obviously, a pandemic, which would shut everything down. Mm. Uh, there was sort of a sense, notwithstanding the comments that Obama made uh, about, you know, Britain being at the end back of the queue for a trade deal, I think there was a lot of optimism that that would, um, in uh, when, you know, in real life uh, play out that the United States would obviously be um, entirely focused on uh, the special relationship and would um, rethink uh, those comments. Um, and of course, under the uh, Trump administration, that seems to have been the case, at least from you know the UK perspective, particularly with this kind of special relationship that emerged on a personal level between uh, Trump and uh, Boris Johnson for a variety of different reasons. Um, but in actual fact, I think, you know, the um, experience uh, for the UK um, has uh, been quite a difficult one in terms of you know, thinking about the trade relationship with, uh, with the US. It hasn't been the golden opportunity for a new standard setting uh, trade relationship because, you know, the um, administration here in the United States has wanted to have, you know, a trade relationship with the UK that has been primarily beneficial to the United States. And, you know, the UK got out of the practice of negotiating trade deals and you know obviously inevitably as everybody had predicted the um most important trade deal to work out first of all is with the eu because of uh, the the sheer fact of having been in these exclusive trading relations for 40 years uh with european counterparts um, the it's all kinds of like emergency deals that would have to be made and those emergency deals you know start to shape uh, the framework that the uh, UK is operating in. Uh, uh, costs that, of course, everybody appreciated would be there in the short term. Those in fact may maybe much more medium to long term costs, given the pandemic and the massive shifts. So Brexit was conceived in a time uh, that um, has disappeared. Now we've got the pandemic and we've got a huge uh, number of, of shifts um, on a global scale. So, um, you know, the consequences don't look... Um, uh, let's just say the consequences look a bit dire and the um, opportunities don't appear to be there right now. So I think there's going to have to be a lot of hard, hard thinking about this.
0: Well, well, the final, final question. Yeah, then, I would say, it
1: doesn't mean to say that something can't be worked out, but the premise on which uh, this was based has gone.
0: Okay. Well, a final, final question then. I mean, if the UK government and other supporters of Brexit would say that in terms of being a player, the UK being a player on the world stage, it is a very active member of NATO. It is a permanent member of the UN Security Council. It is a fully-fledged member of the G7. will have the presidency next year. It will also co-chair things like the COP26 next year on climate change. So isn't that enough in its armory to project itself and be taken seriously as a, as a global world power?
1: Well, those are all opportunities. Um, you know, for Britain to show that it can uh, exactly project the power of the past. Mm. So those opportunities put the content in them. So, you know, I mean, I think that's an important point. So yes, we, okay, we have NATO, so we have um, COP process, we uh, have the G7, but again, these are events. What do you put in them? You know, right now we're hearing a lot from um, Boris Johnson and his team about uh, the creation of a new deal in the UK itself on the domestic front. So Mm. can you um, elaborate on that to put that in an international uh, perspective? Could you use that as a basis of working together with others on a larger new deal? because clearly we're going to have to rebuild after the pandemic. We're going to have to figure out how we all pull together and how we work together. So there is an opportunity there, but there's only an opportunity if you put content in it. It's what you make of it. It's not just sort of sitting there around, you know, to prove that you are still a major player. You have to be able to show that you've got something to bring forward. So that is, you know, a real challenge. And I'm not saying that they can't live up to it. I'm just saying that the original premise that the UK was just going to be accepted as the great international player, um, that's shifted. Because every country now has been, you know, brought down by the pandemic one way or another. And the UK, like the United States, and a number of other countries, you know, Brazil, to name one, and actually the Russians as well, many others have not performed well in the mm. pandemic. In fact, they've been shown to be extraordinarily weak domestically in ways that, you know, perhaps they hadn't anticipated. So to be able to show strength and to project influence... You know, you have to take some drastic action, and you know the United States and the United Kingdom could work together on you know kind of a shared agenda. For example, mm. the UK could reach out to um, Europe on a shared agenda in these contexts. But you know, they have to take action. They can't just talk about it. They have to you know bring something to the table.
0: Okay. Well, we we have to leave it there, Fiona Hill. Thank you very much for your time. Thank and you, how- Paul.